Well, I've been praying this week, and since we finished up our Heaven series, I was praying about what God wanted to share next, and I started reading Nehemiah in my own devotional life. And usually I don't pair the two. What I read in devotions is different than what we talk about on Sunday morning. But I kind of felt impressed that this is maybe where God wants to take us. So we're going to look at what Nehemiah has to say. We're going to go starting at verse 1. We're going to look at that and see how it ties into what's happening in the world right now. So if you have your Bibles open to Nehemiah chapter 1, or you can read it on the screen. Nehemiah 1 verse 1 says, These are the memoirs of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. Now, before we get into his, his story, his memoirs, his book, let's understand what's happening in his world at that particular moment. This was probably, I think most theologians believe, this was the last chronological book in the Old Testament. This is the last thing to actually happen before the New Testament era happened. It was uh, 140 years prior to this, Judah was taken into captivity by the Babylonians. You know, Israel was taken captive by the Assyrians, Judah was taken captive by the Babylonians. And each of them spent, or Judah spent 70 years in captivity until they were finally released. And so 70 years after that has transpired, so it's been 140 years. During this time, or during the, the 70 years that they were away, Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed the temple. He destroyed the walls. He destroyed the gates. He basically leveled the town. And prior to this, there had been a few attempts to rebuild the walls and the temple and everything. And every one of them had fallen apart. They didn't work. If you read through Ezra, Ezra mentions that due to apathy and fear, every time they attempted to rebuild it, it never, never finished. They, they, they quit. So now it comes along Nehemiah. And verse 1 continues and says, In the late autumn of the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was at the fortress of Susa. How many know, does that, reckon, that name ring a bell with anybody? Susa? Susa was a large city in what is now southwestern Iran. Daniel was in Susa when he saw his vision. Daniel 8 verse 1 says, During the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, saw another vision, followed the, following the one that had already appeared to me. This time I was at the fortress of Susa in the province of Elam, standing beside the Uli River. Esther was also in Susa. Esther 1 verse 1, this happened in the days of King Xerxes, who reigned over 127 provinces stretching from India to Ethiopia. At that time, he ruled his empire from his throne at the fortress of Susa. So this is a very prominent country that Nehemiah was now in, but it was a country that was decidedly not favorable to Jewish people. Obviously, they were the ones taking them captive, and this meaning that they were not favorable to Jewish people in the Jewish history, this makes this even more of a, a miracle account. So I'm gonna sh we're going to jump to verse 11. I'm going to show you one thing real quick. Verse 11 says, In those days I was the king's cupbearer. Now Nehemiah, for him to hold this position as a Jew, spoke well of his character, his ability. For him it was a position of great responsibility, great privilege. He was the one that tasted the drinks to make sure they weren't poisoned to, before he gave them to the king. You know, we kind of worry about drinking after each other now. This guy, if he, if he keeled over, he knew that the king knew he wasn't going to drink that drink. But also, in that position, he himself could have poisoned the king. So he had a great position, 
a great responsibility. And to be close to the king like that required him in this culture. He had to be a good-looking guy. He couldn't be your run-of-your-mill guy. He had to be cultured. He had to be knowledgeable in all the court procedures. He was able to advise the king should he ask. So this position gave him a lot of influence, a lot of power, a lot of confidence. Now, why does this matter to us? Well, because the Jewish remnant, the 70 years were up, and they had about 70 years to go back. They could go back one at a time if they wanted to, back to their homeland. And Nehemiah could have went with them. But he decided to stay where he was, keep his position, and chose to remain at his post. And I wrote down here, God puts people in places and situations where he can best use them. God put Esther in Susa. And what what did she do? She saved the Jewish people, right? God put Joseph in Egypt. God put Daniel in Babylon. When God's about to do something, he prepares people and he puts them in the right place at the right time for us to be used. And I, I thought about that and I said, you know, God has you where you, where he wants you right now. Our job is to be prepared for when God calls you in that position to be used by him. I remember when I first told Anna and I, w- I wanted to be a preacher, her instant reaction was not, yay. It was no. And her response to me was, hey, you know what? God needs good accountants too. God needs good accountants. Where you are, God needs good accountants. And you know what? That's true. God needs good Christians in every walk of life. Nehemiah 2, verse 3, it ties in with this verse. It says, Hen and I, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. Now, my pages separated here. Nehemiah was just having another ordinary day at work. Nothing special. He was just doing his thing. Until in God's providence, his brother shows up. Now, how, how often have we talked about and prayed for divine appointments? Where you're just going about your daily business and God puts something in front of you that it requires you to react. It gives you the opportunity to talk to someone about Christ. This was a divine appointment by God. And divine appointment is an event that happens to us or with us that God has predetermined to use us for a purpose. Moses was tending his sheep. Normal day, uh, helping the sheep along, he sees a burning bush. David was just called home from shepherding like any other day, but on that day he was anointed king. All the disciples, when Jesus called them, they were just doing their thing. They're fishing, collecting taxes. They were just doing their thing, and God called them out. You never know when and where God can use one small thing in your life to change it, to change course. So our job is to keep our hearts open, keep doing what you're doing, pray for divine appointment, and when that comes, be willing to step out and be willing to recognize it as well. And so for Nehemiah, his brother coming was a divine appointment because this conversation would now change the entire direction of his life. How many want God to change your direction of your life? Are you pretty happy where you are? You know, things are going along pretty good. That's one of the reasons Anna said, no, no. God needs good accountants because that was going to be an ultimate change in direction of your life. So, verse 2 goes on and says this, repeating, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. I asked them how, about how the Jews had survived, who had survived the captivity 
and about how things were going in Jerusalem. And they said to me, things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been burned. Just like Esther's preparation, God had her there and God was able to use her. Nehemiah, God allowed him to be in this position to be used by God to change Judah's history. Remember Esther 4.14 says, and this is, uh, I like this verse. Esther was, you know, afraid to do anything, didn't want to really get involved in um, Haman or, yeah, her brother, her uncle. He said, if you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance from the Jews will arise from some other place, but for you and your relatives will die. What's more, who can say but that you have been elevated to to the palace for such a time as this? You are where you are, and God may put something in front of you because you were there. And God is predetermined to be used, you to be used at that point for just this purpose. And the first thing we notice that is that Nehemiah cared about what was happening in his hometown. Now you might think about this is a guy, he probably wasn't born in Judah. He was probably born in Babylon, or which is now Persia. He had a good job, had respect, had everything. Why would he care about something that was a thousand miles away he had never been to? Living a pretty good life? Because he cared about something more than himself. It's easy to look at our lives and say, you know what, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable where I am. I really don't want God to change things in my life too much. I'm, I just want to keep going where I'm going and not really be open to any kind of radical change. And it would have been easy for him to do that. Hey, I can just sit in this position. I can not rock the boat. I can just keep feeding the king his drinks and retire, live a good life. But for God to be able to use each one of us for great things, we need to be able to care about things other than ourselves, things that are out there that we have influence over that we can really change. So he hears about the sad shape of Judah and Jerusalem, and it, it might sound like to you that, or to me, that he's worried about the physical location, about the walls and the gates and everything else in the temple. But if you look at his original question, the question was about people, not the structure of the city. Nehemiah 1-2, he says, I asked him about the Jews who had survived the captivity. But Nehemiah knew if there were no walls and there were no gates, the people would be open to attacks from the enemy. They had no protection, nothing to guard them. And he knew that the walls and gates had to be built up to protect the people around them. And because he cared about them, he cared about what was happening to them, he couldn't just let that slide. He could have just said, you know what? That's somebody else's problem. They did that to themselves. They caused this captivity. I'm benefiting from it now. I'm not going to help them. But he didn't. He was willing to sacrifice and take his own life in his hands to make something happen. How often do we not want to know something? Because it might lead us to do something. Ignorance is bliss. If I know of a problem, that means I might have to do something, so don't tell me. No, 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 no. I don't want to know. American historian Henry Adams says this, and this is true today. 
Practical politics consists in ignoring the facts. And I think we have a, a, a new version of that is uh, facts don't care about your feelings. Aldous Huxley, who was actually an atheist, he says, facts don't cease to exist because they are ignored. Warren Wiersbe says, closing our eyes and ears to the truth can be the first step toward tragedy for ourselves and others as well. If we ignore or we don't want to know what's happening around us in society because we don't want to get involved, we don't want to be a part of it, we or our children are going to suffer for us not getting involved with it. The Bible calls the church to be salt and light, right? And what's the kids' songs? Not hide it under a bushel, no. We're called to not ignore what's happening, but to pray and act accordingly. Nehemiah knew he had to do something, but he didn't just rush out and do it. Verse 4 says, when I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. First thing we notice is this not news he took in. Thought about it for a while and then let it go. This was now a burden that God had placed on him. He heard this information and now he has a burden for it. You ever feel like you have a burden for something? Something that's always on your mind, you can't get rid of it? And we have two choices when you have that feeling. The first is you can ignore it. I don't want to do anything about it. Or you can pray and act and see how God directs you to get involved. If we want to accomplish anything of value for God, we need to take time to seek God about it rather than rushing off headstrong and doing it. And then once we pray and we seek God's face about it and then the burden still is there, we need to do what God tells us to do. Now I wrote down here, there's almost always time to pray before you act. How many know that? Almost every time, now there may be a few situations that don't require prayer or it's an obvious situation that God has you in. But more often than not, God gives us time to pray and to seek his will for that situation. Because a lot of times we may react out of emotion rather than God's direction. Now the emotion may trigger something that causes us to act, but we want to be able to do it out of God's will rather than emotion. And prayer takes the emotion out of it. It gives you a logical reason to get involved. Something like this that was this radical, you need God's guidance and direction. And you're going to see later on in the series that you need God's favor too. So how does he pray? Verse 5 says, Then I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands, listen to my prayer. The question is, to whom do we pray? You know, a lot of talk is about faith and we have faith for something. We have faith in this or faith in that. It's not the the quantity of faith that you have. It's the object in which you put your faith. I can believe all day long and I have faith that this pulpit is going to move by itself. It doesn't matter how much faith I have. The object in which my faith is placed is not worthy of that faith. When you pray and you trust God, God is worthy of the faith that you place in him. 
The Bible talks about faith as small as a mustard seed because it's the person to whom you have faith in that is willing to act. And he had faith that God was able to do it. And he prays, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love. Now, I wrote this down. Do our prayers sometimes sound like this? O God of some power and limited ability who sometimes keeps your word. I hope you hear me. No, he's the God of heaven. He is a great and awesome God. Your faith is placed in a most powerful being in the universe who can do anything. And he always keeps his word. And Nehemiah knew he had to pray to an awesome God because he was going to embark on a mission that was impossible. He needed a great and awesome God to work everything out. And how many know that in our country right now, we need a great and awesome God to work everything out? Because what can we do in and of ourselves? Nothing. Pray. Pray. Why? Because we have a great and awesome God who can change situations. And not only nationally, but personally. How often do we have situations in our lives that seem practically impossible to work out? In fact, they are impossible in our own strength. They can't happen. That unless God really intervenes, nothing's going to get accomplished. We have an election. How can we change that? If there's cheating, how can we spot it? Who, you know, we can't do anything. But we have a great and awesome God that keeps his word. And it's to him we pray. And we pray not for what we want, but we pray for God to have his will done. Have a righteous election. When we face difficult situations in our own life, we also need to take account and stock of where we are. Nehemiah did this as he prayed. In verse 6 he says, Look down and see me praying day and night for your people Israel. I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, laws, and regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. I mentioned earlier that the Jews were in this bad situation because they brought it on themselves. God gave them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to repent and get right, and they ignored everyone. And so God finally had to send them into captivity as punishment. Now, if you remember, they were sent into captivity because they were an idolatrous nation, right? That was why they went. They worshiped everything but God. God sent them for 70 years in Babylon, and to this day, Jewish people as a whole are not an idolatrous people. They worship God of the Old Testament. Our job is to get them to know Christ. But the 70 years did what it was supposed to do. It got them from being an idolatrous nation to worshiping the God of the Old Testament. So it worked. It just didn't get finished. Nehemiah realized that he wasn't even alive to cause this exile. It wasn't his fault that they were there. But he was still a sinner and would probably have been responsible for the exile had he been alive at that time. You ever ever blame Adam and Eve for where we are today? Man, if, if, if he wouldn't have eaten that fruit, well, you know what? If he wouldn't have eaten it, somebody else would have eaten it. 
And if you were there or I was there, we would have eaten it. So it doesn't matter who did it. We are sinners because of that. And maybe you're in a place now that was partly are fully due to your choices, your decisions, your choices. You put yourself in that situation. You know, one of my favorite verses is this. Psalm 103, verse 9 says, He will not constantly accuse us nor remain angry forever. He has not punished us for all of our sins, nor does he deal with us as we deserve. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> Aren't you glad God's not up there with like a whack-a-mole hammer waiting for you to sin? And pow, pow. The Bible says God does not treat us as our sins deserve. So even though you put yourself in a bad situation, it doesn't mean God can't get you out of it. Now there are consequences for our choices but God's still able to deliver you from them. And God is able, Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good. Good choices, bad choices. God can turn all of that around. All of it. To make it good for us. And aren't you glad? Man, aren't you glad? So verse 10 goes on and says, We are your servants, the people you rescued by your great might and power. Oh, Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those, who, those of us who delight in honoring you. Now, what's he doing? He's referring to their deliverance from Egypt. You delivered us. You, your great power and might was exhibited in Egypt. We know that you did it then. We know that you can do it now. Has God answered your prayers in the past? Has God done things for you in the past? Do you think he's the same God now as he was then. If he did it then, he can do it again. God, you delivered us out of Egypt, which was worse than this. And we believe you can help us rebuild these walls. You can help us protect the city. But notice he's asking God to hear the prayers of those who delight in honoring him. And that would be those who are the righteous in his time, who are in a right relationship with God. If you don't delight in honoring God with your lifestyle, then we might want to rethink our prayer life because God does not hear everyone's prayer. How many know that? If you have not trusted Christ for your salvation, God does not hear your prayer. Proverbs 15, 29 says, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. There's one prayer that God hears. Salvation prayer. Lord, save me. If you don't know Christ and you're praying for things, chances are pretty good God's not listening to you. Verse 11 goes on and says, Please grant me success now as I go back and ask the king for a great favor. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. I like this. Notice he didn't pray, Lord, grant somebody else success. Send them. Give them favor. When Isaiah prayed, was praying at the beginning of Isaiah, and he prays, and God listens in verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 8, in Isaiah it says this, Then I heard the Lord asking, Whom shall I send as a messenger to my people? Who will go for us? And Isaiah said, Lord, he'll go. Send him. Is that what it says? It says, Lord, I'll go. Send me. 
God does his work, most of his work, through people, right? It's people that have to pray. It's people that have to get discernment and wisdom. People have to go, and people have to actually do. Romans 10, 14, how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? In our church back home, a lot of people would come to our pastor and say, hey, how, how can, we, can we do this particular ministry? Can we have a ministry of this? Can we have a ministry of that? Can we, can we do this? And his answer was always, if you have that burden, why don't you run the ministry? I used to think that was kind of a smart aleck answer. But it's true. If God is giving you a burden, if God puts something in front of you that you see, it's there for a purpose. The burden is yours. The ministry that God has put in front of you is yours. It's not meant for somebody else. You have the burden and only you can carry it out. Nehemiah needed God to help him because God gave him a burden. But he didn't go off half-cocked. He just didn't jump on his horse and ride off. He had a plan. He had to sit down and pray, and he needed God's favor to do that. Even though he was the king's cupbearer, he couldn't do just what he wanted, right? He was still a slave. Remember what happened to, uh, you know, Joseph and the cupbearer with him? They were both thrown in jail because the king just felt like it. So he couldn't just approach him without having God's favor. You know, one of the things about, and Keith is going through this now, when you go in the ministry, you're never, at least I was never confident about it. Like, oh, yeah, everybody wants to be a preacher. And so I would ask God for favor in different situations. And every time I, there was three written tests and three oral exams you had to take. And every time I took a test, I you know, said, okay, God, if this, is, if this is just my fantasy and I'm not supposed to do this, Lord, then you need to stop it. You can stop it right here. I got a test, and I got 12 guys that are going to ask me questions, and any one of them can, you know, torpedo this at any time. So, Lord, if you want me to go, then you need to give me favor with these guys. And he did every time. But I had to pray that way, and God had to give me favor in order to do it. And we want God to not only direct our path but give us favor as we go when i worked in the city in pittsburgh at the time it was a beeper company how many remember beepers back way back when this is before cell phones come out and so it was a very volatile business and you know we had sales guys coming and going all the time and i was there in unprecedented eight or nine years and I, god just kept me there for whatever reason god kept me there and I was always successful, always did a good job. And finally, when I was going to leave that job and go into ministry, I went and talked to the manager, and I said, you know, I'm out, I'm done. And he says, well, it's probably a good thing that you're doing that because your job was going to be eliminated anyways. But see, God kept me. God had favor on me the time that I was there, and when my time was done, I was done. When you ask God to give you a burden and give you favor, God will prepare the path for you and when your time in that position is done you're done and God will direct you someplace else Nehemiah was praying 
And part of his plan was he had to have somebody else give him favor. I remember going back to when I worked in the company. When I first got saved, and I you know, was all excited but didn't know anything. The district manager called me in his office, or her office. And we were talking, and I forget what the conversation was like, but I remember saying this to her. I said, you know, I, I really don't work for you. I work for the Lord. I don't recommend anybody doing that. <laughs> because that was kind of stupid on my part, okay? But even at that point, and, and this, this girl was not a Christian by any stretch of the imagination, and she could have fired me in any moment. But I still had favor with them because God wasn't done with me there. And God used people who were decidedly not Christian in my organization to help me. And God will use people in your lives that may not be Christian to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. And that's exactly what Nehemiah was going to experience with the king. Remember, no, fa no fan of Jewish people, this guy. Didn't like the Jewish people at all. They were the ones previously that had conquered them. And now he's about to ask this guy for help. So he had to play, pray, plan, and have God go before him to work on that king's heart. Now, we've said a lot of times that God uses wicked people to accomplish his will. Even wicked people in power, for whatever reason. And so, even though someone is in a position of authority that may not know Christ, if God wants to accomplish something, he's going to accomplish it. And he's going to use them to do it. The king had other selfish reasons, but God used his selfish reasons to get his will accomplished. Now, the king, we're going to find out later, the king wanted Nehemiah to pray for him. But Nehemiah wanted everybody, or the king wanted everybody to pray for him. And he just thought, you know, Nehemiah's God was just like any other God. So the more people praying for him to all their different gods, he was cool with. So he thought, well, if I'll, I'll help Nehemiah because I'm going to ask him to pray for me. He wanted something from Nehemiah, so he's willing to give something to Nehemiah. And no matter what the reasoning is and how God works it out, God will use people in your life that don't know God to accomplish bigger and better things through you. Now, next week, we're going to see how God moves on these people's hearts to accomplish his will. And you ask yourself a question. What is there in your life that you think corresponds to Nehemiah? And you say, you know what, that's, that's me. Are you prepared and praying to, be, to have divine appointments? Are we really praying for that? I was at Giant the other day, and I had my, my hoodie on, my Dover Assembly hoodie. And the, the cashier said something, oh, where's your church located at? I'm like, oh, awesome. I get to talk to her for a few minutes, you know. So that's, you know, it's a good advertisement if you want to wear those. In fact, I, where's Gary? Oh, I saw Gary at the store. He, he had his hoodie on too. And you know what? It gives you an opportunity to talk, and it was a divine appointment. You never know when something like that is going to come up, which also, if you're going to wear the hoodie, <laughs> act right. <laughs> Don't be like one of those folks that, you know, I've mentioned this before that, you know, waitresses and waiters hate Sundays. They hate them. It's their worst day. You know why? Because church people are the worst customers and the worst tippers. I, I can't even fathom that at all. And, and they know it's church people because we're all dressed up. 
And, they, and, and I've been with them. I've, I've taken people out to restaurants and, and from church and they've acted terribly. I get them back in the van, I yell at them, are you crazy? What are you doing? I don't like this food, take it back. It's a service, it's a service. Yay, way to witness for Jesus. So if you're wearing a hoodie, act like it. Are you prepared or praying to be prepared to have those divine appointments? Are you ready to answer? The Bible says be always ready to give an answer to those who ask you of the hope you have within. So if someone asks you, are you ready to give an answer? Are you ready to give scripture? Are you ready to give your testimony? Do you have something in your life that's a burden? It just, it's, no matter what you do, it's always there. Something that needs to be done. You see something in front of you that needs to be done. And you can't, no matter how much you ignore it, it's still there. And just like most of us, maybe you need a great and awesome God to do something in your life that right now looks impossible. And the Bible says nothing is too hard for God. You know, the WM concert or the conference yesterday, I got to be a part of that because I was here. And the one thing that they said was, who are you praying for that is impossible? They're never going to come to Christ. That's God's best work. Because it's not up to you. God's the one who saves. Our job is to plant and water and, and be what we need to be. But God needs the one who needs to break through into the life. We've been studying demonology on Wednesday nights and we talked last week about the enemy blinding the minds of unbelievers, right? Who can break that? We can't break it, but God is able to break those blinders that people are blinded to the truth. You try to talk to someone about the Lord and they just don't understand anything. Something that seems so simple to us, the Bible says they're blinded, they don't understand. I remember when I was in college, my girlfriend at the time gave me a Bible to read. The Way. I mean, the old Way Bibles. And I started reading it, and I was like reading Greek. I had no idea what I was reading. Because I wasn't a Christian. I was started reading it. And I got like the third chapter of Genesis, and I said, okay, this isn't for me. Because I had no clue of what I was reading. But the minute I got saved, man, light bulb went off. Now I understand. God took the blinders away. God can take the blinders away from people we're praying for, the people that seem to be the hardest in your life to, to witness to. That's the great and awesome God I believe can change situations. Not only salvation, but in your life. What are you, what are you praying for? What are you trusting God for? That God already promised you that, and it just hasn't happened yet. The Bible says keep praying. Pray continually. Don't give up. Would you stand this morning as we close? I came across a quote this morning from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. How many know who that was? The guy was martyred during World War II. Outspoken Christian. He says that it was this part of his biography. I have his book in my office. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German pastor, theologian, martyr, and spy, was asked in 1943 how it was possible for the church to sit back and let Hitler seize absolute power. His firm answer was, it was the teaching of cheap grace. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, 
absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. We live in a time and culture that not only teaches cheap grace, but praises it. We're required to do things. Our life should be a marked difference from everybody else around us. I was telling the teenagers this morning, we were talking about sin and forgiveness and stuff, and I said, you know, it's, it's easy to for, ask for forgiveness, but if you ask for forgiveness and you don't change your way and you keep coming back and keep coming back, you haven't really repented of it. Our job is to repent. Now, it doesn't mean you're not going to fall again, but you change direction. You physically and emotionally and you mentally stop what you're doing or start what you're not, what you're not doing. And I believe that as time goes on, the more that we do this, the more we're going to sense the presence of God all the time. And part of that is not only feeling good, but how do we react to the situations in the world? You know, we sit back and like, like, they did, like the churches did in World War II, they did close their eyes to what was happening around them because it didn't affect them until it finally came around and did affect them. And the more that we don't and we just sit back and ignore things and close our eyes to stuff, the, more, the quicker it's going to be bad for believers in this time. Let's pray. Hallelujah. Maybe you're here this morning or you're watching us online. Maybe it's your first time or this is your 50th time here. And you've heard a lot about Jesus. You've heard a lot about things like that. But you've never really asked Jesus to forgive you of your sin. The Bible says in Romans that we are all sinners. Every one of us. And the Bible also says in Romans that we, because we're sinners, the wages or the payment for those sins is death. And later on it says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. That means we're all sinners and none of us are destined for heaven unless we ask Christ to forgive us of our sins. Believing that his death, his punishment was something that we should have received. But he took it in our place. And it's more than a factual assent to knowledge. It's more than just knowing that in your head. It's something that you believe in your heart. And you, when you believe it in your heart, it, it changes your life. It changes your mind. It changes your heart. It changes your direction. It changes everything about you. The Bible says these things are written that you may know you have eternal life. So if you're not sure, you're not really, you're not positive, you're not, you can't pinpoint a date where you actually did that and you're not sure, the Bible says this is the day to get sure. This is the day to really Put your cards on the table and say, yes, Lord, I know. I've never accepted your payment for my sin. I've never asked you to forgive me of my sin, to wipe my slate clean, and to make me right with God. But today is the day I want to do that. If that's you, I want you to raise your hand. If you're at home and you're watching this, and you've raised your hand where you are, I'm going to pray with you, and then I'm going to pray for those of us that are here. Father, I pray for those that are watching that have raised their hand, that they realize that they need Christ in their life, that they know that Jesus is the only way to have a relationship with God. There is no other God. There is no other mediator. 
other than the man Christ Jesus. And Lord, they have come to you repenting of their sin, knowing that their sin is keeping them from you, and knowing that you have died and paid the penalty for that sin. And now because they believe that in their heart, in their spirit, you've wiped that slate clean. And God, now they begin a new walk with you. The Bible says they're a new creation in Christ. The old person's gone, the new has come. They are a new person in Christ, ready and excited to serve you and to learn more about you. So Father, I pray that you would get them involved. Lord, if they're close, I pray that you would bring them into our fellowship and help us to train them and disciple them. If they're not anywhere close to us, find a church that is a good Bible-believing church with a godly pastor and get in there and get involved and have them teach you the ways of God. For those of us that are here in this church, I thank you that we know you, we've trusted you as our Savior, and we've trusted you to work in our lives to make us who you want to be. And I pray your blessings upon each one of us here. As the title of our sermon says, one person, one man can make a difference. Nehemiah was one guy. Each one of us as individuals is one person, and each of us can make a difference if we are open to being used by God. It may change the course of your life, it may just be one divine appointment, but one person, each one of us individually, can matter and can make a difference in someone else's life. So I pray that as we leave the day, that God, you energize us, you just fill us with your spirit, fill the anointing, fill us with the anointing of God so that when we leave here today, we will be on assignment from you and we will believe for those divine appointments and we will believe that what we do makes a difference in the kingdom of God. And whenever people come our way or circumstances or directions, we are ready to give an answer. So Lord, bless us as we leave today. Anoint us, fill us, set us up, Lord, and allow us to lead people to you and be a blessing to someone else, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. God bless you. Have a great week, and we'll see you here again Wednesday.